So the questions began to be whispered around the camp. One person would voice to another, where is he? What's taking so long? What's happened to him? And these questions and these whispers would eventually turn into worries, worries that would ultimately create this restlessness and this discontent, because waiting is hard, right? It's difficult when we have to wait. We often forget about what has been done and only worry about what will be. And so with this restlessness and with this discontent, they sought someone else, someone else that could maybe alleviate their concerns. And so when they saw that he was long and coming down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron, and they said, make for us gods out of gold. For this fellow Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. And amazingly, Aaron didn't resist, didn't push back, didn't try to persuade, didn't try to convince them to be patient, to have faith, to have trust. Instead, he said, bring me your earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters have worn. And when they brought these things to him, he, he took them and he fashioned an idol in the shape of a calf using this tool to fashion it. And they said, these are the gods who brought us out of Egypt. A statement of complete evil and rebellion. One that showed complete disregard for the plagues that God had thrown down on Pharaoh's throne. Complete neglect of the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night and the wind that pushed back the waves of the sea before it collapsed on the horse and its rider. Complete and total rebellion because they took their gold and with their hands created an idol that they called their God of rescue. And so when Aaron saw this, he created an altar and said, tomorrow we'll have a festival to the Lord. And so the next day they woke up and they came with sacrifices and offerings and they ate and they drank and they indulged in revelry. But this rebellion would not go unnoticed. It would not be overlooked. For where was he? What was he doing? He was with the Lord. And so the Lord said to Moses, Come down, come down from this mountain, for I've seen how quickly they have forgotten me. I know these people, this stiff-necked people. Leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can start over with you. And Moses begged and he pleaded and he said, don't let the Egyptians say that you brought them out with your own desire just to kill them and hear them here, leave them here in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Remember the promise that you gave them to make their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and to give them this land. And then grace, mercy, forgiveness. The Lord relented. And so Moses came down the mountain and he stumbled upon and saw this, this horrific act of rebellion. And he confronted him. And the exchange was gruesome. For some repented and were spared, but many did not and were destroyed. And so Moses told him. He said, let me see if I can go seek an atonement for this act. And he came before the Lord and he told them, oh Lord, the people have committed a great sin. They have made gods of gold, but forgive them. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. And the Lord gave him that forgiveness. And it's prayers like that, remarkable prayers like that, that shows us why Moses was so favored in the eyes of the Lord. 
One who was willing not just to seek atonement, but willing even to sacrifice himself so that others could find the forgiveness of sins. And so there was forgiveness, but there were still consequences. Because God is holy, he is just, he can't just leave it completely undealt with. So there were plagues, there was wandering, but there was forgiveness. But what was remarkable about this exchange was the relationship between Moses and the Lord. For not since the very beginning, not since the banishment of Adam and Eve, had we seen someone enjoy such proximity to the Lord. Right? When, when Adam and Eve were banished, it started this whole narrative of this separation between the creator and the created. And the pages of history, the pages of scripture have always shown all the attempts to, to address that separation. And now here was one known as Moses who had the opportunity to be in the presence of the Lord in a remarkable and incredible way. And it was often revealed to us through this tent of meeting. A tent that was actually set up outside of the camp where people could go and inquire of the Lord. And when Moses would go and enter into the tent of meeting, everyone else would stand at the front of their own entrances of their own tents and they would watch as the cloud would come and descend upon the tent of meeting and they would see his presence there and they would worship because they knew that Moses was one whom the Lord spoke to as if he was speaking to a friend. And the exchanges between Moses and the Lord were remarkable. Like the time when Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, I can't show you face to face, but I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand and I will pass by you declaring my name, the Lord, for I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And when I remove my hand, you can look at my back. But no one can look at me face to face and live. And he was impacted by the glory of the Lord, over and over again, in the tent of meeting, so much so that when Moses would leave the tent of meeting, his face had actually been changed, impacted by the glory of God. It was radiant. And the Israelites saw this radiance of Moses' face, and they were terrified. And so Moses covered his face with a veil. Is that transforming mark of God's glory. And this was the sort of relationship that made Moses who he was, this this person who could lead with such boldness. A boldness to have this faith and this trust when nobody else could and nobody else would because he had been impacted by the glory of the Lord. He had seen his grace. He had seen his truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the incarnation is impossible to put into words. But today, Father, we seek to understand it and understand it for its fullness and for its transforming power. And so send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds to all that it means for us today. We come now expectantly, Lord, to meet you and to bring you the glory and honor that you deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I wanted to start with that story this morning because I believe it serves as a very important backdrop for the text that we're going to read. And when we begin this conversation or really continue this conversation on the incarnation, we have to understand that Advent, this Christmas season, the season of Advent is not just a story, it is the story. And it's not a story that begins in the manger. It's a story that begins at the very beginning of time and is continued throughout generation upon generation. The story 
of the creator seeking to reveal himself to humanity. And think of all the different ways that we can see it through the pages of Scripture, God seeking to reveal himself, whether it was the rainbow in the sky or the words that were spoken to Abraham or or maybe the, the ram that was offered as a substitute for Isaac or the burning bush that thundered before Moses. Maybe it was the dreams, maybe it was the miracles, maybe it was the words of the prophets, the great fish that swallowed the runaway, or the amazing rescue from the lion's den, the fiery furnace. Over and over again, we have seen God seeking to reveal himself. The incarnation is not a miracle in the long list of other miracles. It is the culmination of all miracles. It is the ultimate revelation that every other miracle points to. And so we need to approach it with the the reverence and the significance that it demands. And that's what we've been seeking to do for the last several weeks. As we've been walking through the Gospel of John, really these first 18 verses that serve as a prologue to John's Gospel, John brings us on this amazing, poetic, eloquent journey into a greater understanding of the Incarnation. And so we continue that journey this morning. We, we wrap up this prologue by looking at verses 14 and 18 and seeing once again just the amazing power of what God has done through Jesus' birth. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to chapter 1, and we'll take a look at verses 14 through 18. Here's how the text reads. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, Because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. All right, this passage is filled with significance and we'll do our best to dive into it to give it the breadth and the depth that it merits and that it deserves But where we really want to begin is this this first statement, word became flesh. And this is another succinct way to describe the incarnation. So think about what it means. Now we've talked a lot about John's utilization of this term logos, word, right, and the significance that it carries. It would have really resonated with his Jewish audience, with the Hebrew background, because they, they were constantly looking toward the word of God. They they, they longed to hear a word from the Lord. That that would have ascribed some sort of divine attribute to this term. And yet at the same time, the Greeks had a great attachment to this word as well. For them, the logos was something that controlled uh, the universe. It was something you sought to attach your life to. And so for both the Jew and the Greek, when they heard the word logos, it, it had a divine element to it. Okay, so you have this statement of the divine, but notice the change. Verse 1, it says the word was in the beginning. The word was God. The word was with God. But now in verse 14, the word becomes flesh. That word became, suggests, and and clearly defines this change in state. Right? It was one thing, and now it becomes another. This is the statement of the incarnation. Now, Now, one of the things that we begin to think about with the incarnation and its significance is what God is trying to achieve. Right? What, why does he go to the links to actually take on flesh? And I think many ways that we can really, uh, I guess, try to answer that question is just to think about, even in our own world, even our own existence, how we communicate with one another in effective forms 
of communication, right? Because there's a lot of different ways that you can convey a message to someone, especially today. And so you can think of all the different avenues and platforms and ways in which you can convey a message or your sentiment. A lot of times people gravitate to social media, right? And, and they put their thoughts out there. And because it's limited in its ability to communicate, that's what gives rise to misunderstanding, dissension, and quarreling, and all these silly arguments that we see on social media. We see limitations in email. We see it with, where it's not able to give a tone of voice or a posture, all these different things. Text messages, right? I mean, text messages are, are so flawed in so many ways. I mean, how many people have ever been victim of autocorrect, right? It's like you send it, and then you go back and you read it, you're like, oh, it's not at all what I meant, you know? Or you send it to the wrong person, you know? Oh, sorry, wrong text. Uh, in fact, I, I have a, an example that a friend gave me not too long ago. He sent me this text. I think this is a good example he says, seriously, praying for your family, and they said, well, who is this? And he says, well, no, whatever, no more prayers. And he sends him a really mean picture of himself, and then says, well, wait, is this not Candace? And she says, no, this is the wrong number. I haven't, <laughs> I've had this number for a year and a half. And so you have this terrible mistaken identity here, and we've all been there. I decided it was better to use his example than any of my own personal ones. And so <laughs> we've all been there to see these limits of communication, right? So when you think about what's the most effective way to communicate, is it to send a text? Is it to post something online? Is it to write a letter? Or is it to show up in person? It's always most effective to show up in person. Because the links to which you can convey a message. And so the word becomes flesh because it reveals the creator's heart to reveal himself to you and me. It was the most effective and meaningful way to capture all that he wanted us to know. So the word became flesh. Now, in this statement, we have a lot of what we talked about last week as well. We have this, this understanding that the incarnation teaches us that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, right? Word became flesh. We talked a lot about that last week, right? That flesh is, is essentially what is human, and we need the humanity of Jesus to, in order for us to see all that he accomplishes, Right? By him entering into the flesh, we get to see that he empathizes with our sin. He empathizes with our weakness, at the same time, we can have hope now that the flesh can be restored, right? That it can be uh, redeemed, it can be saved. And so we have to have Jesus as fully human. And part of what I want to emphasize this morning is this idea of the divinity of Christ as well, right? The Word becoming flesh and the significance that is associated with that. Now, Part of the way in which we can see this is also referenced in the verses that we read earlier when it talks about John, right? John says, well, this is the one that I spoke of. This is the one that I'm testifying about, the one that I said who's going to come after me but will surpass me because he was before me. Very confusing, right? It's like, who's on first? I don't know, third base, right? It's a really weird statement, but here's what he's saying. Jesus' ministry will follow mine, but it will be greater than mine. It will surpass mine. Why? Because he was before me. He's speaking to the preeminence of Christ. He's speaking to the divinity of Christ, that the word was with God in the beginning. And so we need to understand the divinity that we have attached to the incarnation. And, and I feel like Colossians does such a phenomenal job of this. We, we referenced this a little bit last week when we talked about the, the fullness of the deity in bodily form. But you don't have to turn there, but I want to read to you another explanation that helps us understand the significance of the incarnation and how we should respond to it. It comes from chapter 1, starting in verse 15. <clears throat> it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The divinity of Christ speaks to the supremacy of Christ. Right? He, he surpasses me because he was before me. See, he was before all things. In fact, in him all things were created and in him all things hold together. And it is this way so that he may have the supremacy. So when we approach the incarnation, we need to ask ourselves, are we fully cognizant of the supremacy of Christ? And it's, it's a tricky question if we're honest because we don't typically think about supremacy. We don't typically use the idea of supremacy or the word supreme in our everyday language, right? The only time I typically reference anything that's supreme is when I'm calling Papa John's. And, and we struggle with it because supreme typically means what? Somebody with a greater rank or authority. And we struggle with authority. And so if we're going to honestly ask ourselves, do you, does your life really reflect the supremacy of Christ? We kind of struggle to figure out what that looks like. Because it, it's not really a concept we tend to embrace. And so I want to take some time to, to try to offer an example of how we can answer that question. When we think about supremacy and people that respond to somebody of greater rank or authority, there's two examples I want to give you this morning. The first is the military. I mean, think about it, right? If somebody comes in with a greater rank, greater authority, then how does the other person respond, right? They stand at attention, they acknowledge their supremacy in some way, and then they stand there and they're, they're ready to listen and obey, and that, that's a great example of how we should respond to the supremacy of Christ. It should change our posture, right? We should stand at attention. We should be ready for what is going to be entrusted to us. We should have some sort of outward, tangible expression that acknowledges Christ is greater than ourselves. And we stand ready to listen. We stand ready to obey. Now, the problem with this military example is that it could be somewhat cold and minimize the relationship that we should have with God, right? Because God doesn't ask us to refer to him as general, but as father. And so another appropriate place to understand how we respond to the supremacy and the authority of God in our lives is to look at a parental relationship. Uh, I've told you all uh, not too long ago that my wife and I, we've been on this multi-year journey towards adoption, and it looks like we're nearing the moment where we get to actually travel overseas and bring our little boy home, and, and we cannot wait. It's in a couple of months. And uh, in, in the time leading up to that, we have been busy with documents and paperwork and a lot of preparation for what that's going to be. And one of the ways that we've sought to prepare ourselves is, is to read this book that speaks to what a child who has been orphaned goes through, especially in those earliest phases of development, and, and the impact it has on them later in life. And, and so you, you don't really fully realize just how significant even those first few days, weeks, and months are for a child. Right? You think about it, a child shows up on this earth and they're immediately, typically, handed over to their mother and with a father nearby, hopefully. And in that moment, there's this bond that's created, this, this connection that, that lets this child know this is the one that's going to care for me. They're going to feed me, to comfort me, to soothe me. And because of that, this bond creates this trust that ultimately leads to love. 
And so when cultivated well, the relationship between parent and child is built upon the foundation of love and trust. And that's the foundation that leads into childhood so that then once they reach to childhood, every child listens and obeys every single time. It's amazing. Now, though they struggle with listening and obedience, that is the foundation. And so I like to think of both of those examples, right? That the foundation we have in acknowledging the supremacy of Christ is to see him as a father that is there to comfort, to soothe, to meet our needs. And in that, we find this love, we find this trust that then gives rise to us to stand ready to listen, ready to obey. And so if we're going to ask ourselves, does your life truly reflect the supremacy of Christ during this Advent season, then those are the questions you should ask yourself. Do you really trust him? You really trust him with what he's given you. You trust him with the problems that you have at home. Do you trust him with the problems in your relationships? Do you really love him? Is it something you just say or can you actually point to the things in your life that, does, that express and reveal that love that you have for God the Father? Are you ready? Are you ready at a moment's notice to do whatever it is that he's asked you to do? Do you know how to listen? Do you implement what he tells you? Are you obedient? And those are the marks of a life that understands the supremacy of Christ. And this is what the incarnation brings to us, right? It's fully divine, fully human, so that in everything he has the supremacy. Now, once this incarnation takes place, what happens? The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Now, it's this word that takes us directly back to the story I gave to you at the beginning. The story of the tent of meeting, because dwelt here, dwell, it means to literally Put up a tent and live. And so John is using very intentional language to bring his readers back to the story of Moses and the interactions that Moses had with God the Father. So here's, here's the point, right? The point is, is that Jesus is greater than the tent of meeting. For all of its glory and for all of its majesty, Jesus is greater. In fact, the tent of meeting was pointing to and foreshadowing the incarnation. This moment when God would actually take on flesh and dwell among us. It's a remarkable development. And so once he dwells, what happens? Well, we see his glory, the glory of the one and only son. So in the same way that Moses steps into the tent of meeting and is enveloped with the glory of God, when Jesus comes and takes on flesh, we also are enveloped with the glory of God. We see his glory in the one and only son. Now, I love that distinctive title, one and only, right? John is very clear, this glory exists nowhere else. It belongs fully to Jesus. Now, we live in a world and we live in a time where a lot of people want to embrace the idea that maybe, just maybe, there are many roads to get to the glory of God. And you can kind of believe what you want to believe and we'll all end up in the same place. To believe that sort of thinking is to diminish the uniqueness and the distinctiveness of Jesus Christ. And you can't do that and, and truly follow the scriptures. It is clear he is the one and only. Hebrews 1 says that in the past God spoke to us in many different ways through prophets and through our ancestors. But in the most recent days he has chosen to speak to us through his son who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The point for you and me is that we need not look anywhere else to see the glory of God but to Jesus Christ. It is fully revealed in him. And we've seen it. I love that. We have seen 
his glory. Now that word doesn't mean just to take notice. It doesn't mean just to observe. It means to see with astonishment. I think that's such a great message for you and me because think about the things that you see in your life that astonish you. Right? You, you, you go to a, a sports venue, you see an amazing play, you see something crazy in nature, you see something weird on the road. When you see something astonishing, you don't go, well, look at that. That's fascinating. Interesting. Hey, check that out. Right? No, it's like, whoa, did you see that? I can't believe what I just saw. I got to share it, man. And you're just like sharing everything with people. That's what it means to see. There's an enthusiasm, there's an excitement, and it's one that compels us to share it with other people. That's the sort of comprehension of the glory of God that we see with the incarnation. Right? We've seen his glory. Now, what is it that astonishes us when we begin to look at all that is revealed in Jesus Christ? What astonishes us is that when God reveals himself through Jesus, we do not find someone who is vengeful or vindictive. We see full of grace and truth. And that's where things become amazing. The word fullness means to be complete, to not lack in anything. Now, we talked a lot about truth last week, and so we don't need to dive into it in in great detail this morning, but just as a summary, we talked about the idea of embracing absolute truth. And then once you embrace it, you have to also have this guard against these other things that present themselves in truth but ultimately lead you astray. These false representations of light is what we talked about last week. So we have to to see that it is only in Christ that we have the true, genuine, sincere revelation of God's glory, full of truth. But what I want us to focus on a little bit more intentionally this morning is grace, full of grace. Now, this is further described a little bit later in these verses that we read, right? It said, in fact, it's now grace upon grace. For the law was given to Moses, but grace and truth to Jesus. So, so what's being said here, this theme of grace throughout this passage? Well, part of what John is trying to teach us is that when, when God gives us the law through Moses, that is a gesture of grace, right? It, it reveals this desire for the creator to spend time with his people, to set us apart. It gives us instructions on how to live. Now, the challenge is that, or the reality is, none of us can uphold it. And so it also brings condemnation, but it was a gesture of grace. But now there is grace on top of that grace through Jesus Christ. And the grace that we have in Jesus is not lacking in anything. It is the perfect revelation of God's grace. And so my hope for us this morning is to fully understand it in a meaningful way. Grace is this idea of kindness, right? It's this idea of, of someone who has something who turns to someone in need. That's what God has done for us. He, he has all that we could ever possibly need, want, or desire, and he has turned to us to entrust it to each of us. And so the question for us this morning is, is the level of awareness we have of our need for God's grace. See, I think many of us are quick to understand that, that we're broken, right? And, and I don't know what level you're aware of that this morning, but it, but it wouldn't be hard for us to, to just do some personal reflection and some introspection and identify the things within us that are broken. And maybe some of us are in here today just consistently plagued by lust and all the different choices that continue to destroy us. Maybe it's anger 
right, and the ways in which we talk to somebody else and the, the condescending tone and the resentment we feel. Maybe it's gossip, right, and the dissension we tend to always create, the drama that always seems to follow us and the ways in which we talk about people behind their backs. Maybe it's greed, right, a desire for more, whether that's more money, more possessions, more savings, more, more notoriety, more friends, more, more whatever. If we really stop and think for a little bit, we can probably identify what those things are, and we need it. And the challenge, though, is that a lot of times we have two different reactions to it. Sometimes we walk into God's presence, and it's hard for us to see what's broken. And we're quick to just not even see our need for him. And that in and of itself is, is a gesture or a symptom that, that shows us we need grace and forgiveness. And sometimes, though, we enter into a room like this, or we enter into a season like the one that we're in, and we're overwhelmed our brokenness we're so consumed by our failures and our mistakes to the point that we feel unworthy unloved a waste and the good news of the incarnation is that it sends a message to each and every one of us that we are not forgotten we are not unloved. We are not a waste. We have the opportunity to experience this grace in unbelievable ways, and we need to be those who are ambassadors of this grace as well. And so as we continue, not just through the morning and not just through the Advent season, but through our lives, how do we demonstrate this grace? How do we live a life that, that exemplifies the grace that we have in Jesus Christ? Maybe some of you in here today you need to go seek forgiveness from someone. Maybe you need to go confess some of these mistakes and these failures and ask for somebody to forgive you. Maybe some of you need to extend grace to someone else. You need to surrender that resentment and that, that grudge that you've been holding on to. Maybe you need to forgive yourself and surrender that guilt that you've been carrying. But the reality is, is regardless of the human exchange that might need to take place in our lives, None of it compares to the moment in which we fall on our knees and experience the grace from Jesus himself. And it's a grace that doesn't just remind us that our mistakes are forgiven. It's a grace that tells us that this, this broken, disfigured existence that we call life, that is filled with bloodshed and violence and corruption and pain and disease and the suffering of the innocent, all of it will be undone that the second exodus has come and this grace is in fact amazing. That's what needs to be completely consumed this Advent season to see the levels to which this separation between the creator and the created is no more. And we get to be with him again. He is here. And so it's with this promise that, that John brings us back again even to Moses and his interactions with the Lord. Right? He says, no one has seen God, which is an indirect statement about Moses. Right? Even Moses had to just look at his back. But, but Jesus, he's seen him face to face. He himself is God. He is the closest one to him, and he has made him 
known. This is the good news of the incarnation. This is the good news of the Advent season that our God, our creator, has not chosen to conceal himself or hide himself. He can be known and fully known through the person of Jesus Christ. So do you know him? Have you truly seen his glory? Have you seen the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his truth? What does that look like? How do we point to that in our lives? I want to close with this. I want to encourage us to respond to the the beauty of the incarnation, mindful of this backdrop of Moses' story and, and looking at it through the lens that Paul gives us when he writes his second letter to the church in Corinth and what we see described in chapter three. And I'm gonna paraphrase for us this morning. But here's what Paul reminds us. He says, if the ministry that brought the letters engraved in stone was glorious, so much so that Moses had to cover that glory with a veil over his face, how much more glorious will be the ministry of the Spirit? And if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more so the ministry that brings Righteousness, if that which was transitory comes with glory, how much more so the glory that lasts forever. So therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over our face, but all of us who turn to the Lord have the veil removed, and with the Spirit of the Lord, we are given freedom, and we are being transformed into ever-increasing glory. So hear me again today, church. Hear me again, brothers and sisters, to be very clear. We are not timid. We are not afraid. We are not in fear. We are not in despair. We are not lost. We are not blind. We are bold. Bold to face whatever it is that you face. Bold to take on any challenge, any hurt, any pain. Why? Because we have hope. We have love. We have joy. We have peace. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen its glory. And it is full of grace and truth. We are bold Because the light has come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we are grateful. Grateful for the beauty and the majesty of the incarnation. And Father, we admit and confess that many times we make too light of what it has achieved for us. And so I pray, Father, that in this season today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives, Father, we would never lose sight of this amazing grace that changes us. Father, that we could fix our gaze upon the scene of a manger and be transformed. God, that we could be swept away in all that you've done for us. Father, I pray that you would allow us to to have the enthusiasm and the joy that only can come from truly understanding the fullness of of the incarnation, and that that joy would be contagious in our lives, in our homes, in our friends, and with our relationships. And so, Father, for those of us that perhaps feel distant today, for those of us that perhaps feel far off, we ask you now to come. Come into our lives. Come into our brokenness. Come into our pain. Come into our hurting, come into our despair. Come into our hopes, come into our dreams, come into our aspirations. Just come and help us to be swept away by you once again. We love you, Father. We commit ourselves to you today.
and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.